welcome to episode 345 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. For you, there's nothing in this world I Hey, brother. Hey, brother. I think first, what we should do is address the listener. It's like breaking of the fourth wall in a sense. Usually it's you and I speaking to one another. But let me answer a couple of questions up front for listeners. First question. Is this episode coming out at the wrong time? I'll answer that question shortly. Second, does it sound like you and Tony are in a motor vehicle going somewhere? Is that rumor true? Third question, if the rumor is true that you are in a motor vehicle together, where are you going? So I think we should answer all these questions directly to the listener. What say you? I'm in for it. Okay, so let me address the first one. First question, was this episode delayed? Absolutely it was, and we have a good reason for that. Longtime listeners will remember that we have a pastor in reverence, pastor in reverence, pastor in residence. <laughs> he is a reverend. It is the Reverend Dr. Kevin Schwamm, my father and Tony's father-in-law. And everybody's favorite pastor, our pastor in residence, the Dr. Reverend Kevin Schwamm, underwent some fairly serious open heart surgery this past week to correct a genetic defect. And so because of that, this episode was pushed because we have priorities. Yeah. Yeah, we had to make sure everything was taken care of and people were in the right place at the right time and that just didn't allow for recording. So, but we're doing it now. We're doing it now and that brings me to the last two questions. Yes, we are in a car because we figured we'd take this show on the road and where are we going? We're actually coming back from the hospital seeing that great pastor. So I would encourage all of our listeners, if you wouldn't mind praying for my father as he convalesces from his heart surgery, he's doing well. God has been very good to all of us throughout this week, especially to him. We're really, really, really grateful. And I'm just going to say that is our combined affirmation. That is so big, it swallows up any even potential denial. Yeah. Yeah. We're just thankful. I mean, it. he's such a faithful servant to the church and he's so dedicated to his family. So it's clear to see God rewarding and, and uh honoring that commitment and he's just doing so well so yeah th- thanks for being patient with us as this episode didn't come out on time and uh, thank you for your prayers for him uh, as we move forward with it we appreciate that so much and again at some point we'll be doing a podcast because we'll be on the road doing the reform brotherhood tour but that is not this time now we're just on the road coming back from the hospital we have a, a little bit of a drive and Tony and I have already had epic conversations that I think we wished we had hit the record button on, but that's just our life. Or maybe they're not even that good. <laughs> yeah, probably would be boring to most people outside of the car. So, yeah. But here we are. We are together at last. And as in the past on our road trip conversations, we appreciate you coming along with us. You are actually in the car with us right now, separated, of course, in time, but you're with us as we listen in on this conversation and just know that we, we are literally, I'm literally passing a microphone back and forth. My great hope whenever this occurs is that people will see this and have a story to tell as they're on the road. And if we ever get into any traffic, people will just pull up alongside and be like, what is going on? That guy's literally shoving a microphone in front of the face of that driver, like every five to 10 seconds. So I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, it'll be good. I'm, I'm hoping we're going to hit some stop and go traffic so Jesse can hop out and shove the microphone into someone else's face and just be like, what's the chief end of man? 
And the person will be like, I don't know what you mean. I don't understand that language. Yeah, that could, I mean, it, yeah, it's possible we might get some stronger responses that are <laughs> not quite of that nature. Uh, but speaking of strong responses, best segue ever. Yes. Speaking of strong responses, so listeners who are tracking with us who've been part of this conversation will recognize that we've just finished this whole series individually examining in each episode one of the 10 words, the 10 commandments. And as we were driving and just ruminating on what a great conversation that was, we both concluded it might be great to do a retrospective on all the 10 words. So we took a lot of time to, I think, I want to say painstakingly, but it wasn't painful. It, was, it wasn't even laborious. It was a joy to go through and to really process in deep in a deep way, each of them in a compartmentalized way. But now, I, I, my fear is like, I don't want us just standing, like looking up at one giant oak and saying, wow, what a beautiful tree, without getting a sense for like the ambiance, the perfection of the forest in which each of those trees are planted. And so we thought, let's just talk about all of these things together and what the themes that we've seen and how they are meant to be like wholly integrated among one another. We've touched on that like a little bit along the way, but I think this is an appropriate time to start talking about how do we put all of these things into perspective? How do we bring them all into practice? What do we do to make sure that we're seeing all of them? And that while it's, it's really helpful to maybe climb into the boughs of one of the trees every now and again, that we are appreciating the forest that is all of the 10 words together. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things that, struck me as we were talking through it is how interrelated and interconnected the all the different commandments are um you know i think we see them sometimes as these discrete individual things or these 10 these 10 moral principles that are almost like hermetically sealed off from each other but the the law of god is a kind of like a cohesive organic body and it, it one part is integrated and necessarily connected to the other such that you can't really break one of the commandments without usually breaking all or most of the other commandments kind of in the process. So I'm glad we're going to kind of talk about it from a more holistic big picture perspective than getting in the nitty gritty, because I think we often in conversations about the law, we do focus on an individual tree, but we do lose the forest for that tree. And it's good to step back and sort of look at it as a whole. I mean, we're literally driving through a forest right now. So we've got a lot of kind of forest metaphors on the way. It's present in front of our eyes right now. So one of the things that really struck me is, and we kind of touched on this a little bit, this seeming, and we're not the first to point this out, this seeming like chiastic structure. We talked about, as we ended, this idea of coveting as the mother's sin. And I see that really bookended against God saying, I'm the one true God, have no other gods before me. That, of course, uh, the Puritans would always say, if you, if you before you can break or transgress any of the other nine words, you've already done the 10th one with covetousness. But I'm seeing like there is, of course, there's structure. And I actually think that sometimes breaking the structure, bifurcating the tables is not helpful. I actually think the chiastic structure is more useful in us conceiving that covetousness is the root of so many other sins, including putting God second. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, there's also a sort of reverse image going on too, right? So the the Ten Commandments start off with God saying, have no other gods before me. And then, of course, you know, in the Second Commandment, he says not to make any images because he's a jealous God. And then the flip side of it is basically don't be envious of other of what other people have. So there, there's the chiastic structure we talked about of kind of like starting with the 
uh, the external um, payout, I guess, and then sort of descending into the specific actions and then coming back up through specific actions uh, to sort of come back out to the heart of the matter. There's also this reverse image. And so it's about it, the whole of the Ten Commandments, the whole of God's law is really about having the right priorities and the right motivations. You know, the, the motivation should always be to serve and honor God. And then there's there's positive outflows of that. And then, of course, the, the flip side of that is that if we don't have the right motivations, there's negative outflows of that. So for me, looking through the law and sort of seeing this sort of this like architectonic structure of the law, exemplifying the Ten Commandments has been really, really like really eye opening for me. And that's a great point that the law is always driving us to or should be at least examining the heart issue. That is like, what is the attitude behind trying to fulfill each of these specific commandments. And so I'm reminded as you're saying that just how much we see the need for faith and belief in each of those things. Of course, it starts with belief that there is only one true God. But by the time we get to like the fifth commandment, we're talking, for instance, about obeying and honoring our parents. We're also finding, as we talked about, that there's a sovereignty, a faithfulness in God in the parents that he gives us and that we ought to honor them if only for body and life. And that that itself is enough. It's enough because God has put it into place. And so everywhere in the obedience, it requires both like the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives, of course, but also the trust that God has made it so for our good and for his glory. And without that, then these things kind of become really flat. It, it feels like we're just trying to create some kind of rote obedience even if we're not trying to please God, only because, well, God said so, so I have to do it. But there's no joy in that. I, it seems to me like as we go through the commandments, they're leading us more and more toward joy in God, more and more to the things we get to do, be pulled away from confusion about obeying or being subject to other powers, other forces in our lives. Obedience to the things that God has set up, comfort in the fact that God has set up those things with great purpose and diligence and thoughtfulness towards us and toward all of his creation. And then to your point, by the time you get to the the last one we were saying, do not covet, it shoots you like right back around to the top again. So it's not even like linear. I see this circular. We're just kind of in this beautiful circle of trust. That's where I was going to go with that. But like this beautiful circle of obedience and desire. And hopefully like every way, every time we go around the track, we gain more momentum and it shoots. It's like, I, I picture it's like that. Do you remember that like um, matchback cars track thing where like it, it would have like a, you'd, oh, like a Accelerator? Yeah, like an accelerator thing? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Like each time around the track, it is this idea of it, we're accelerating because of like the spirit's power in our lives to transform, which was what was first set aside to create a people that were set apart for God and in which their obedience was tied to some kind of meritorious work and away from that in a way where, again, we're like we find duty and discipline and diligence and love meeting and coming together in this beautiful mix where we're just more and more empowered as we make our way around the track. But it's not like beginning to end. It's like beginning to beginning again. Yeah. Well, and I think the other thing that I've been reflecting on, you know, I've been doing these um, catechism reflections in the morning in my journals. And one of the things that I've observed on the, you know, the shorter catechism and the longer catechism there, there's this structure to the catechism that is sort of the outflow of the first question, right? So the first question is, what is the chief end of man? The answer, of course, is to, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And then if you look at the way that the catechism structured, glorifying God maps up to the doctrinal part of the catechism and enjoying God 
maps up to the uh, to the law, to like the ethical portion, the ethical articulation. And for me, that's a really encouraging thought. It's like it's not for the this. This is like um, typical like first, second, third use of the law stuff. The third use of the law in the reform model is basically how do we get to enjoy God? Well, we get to enjoy God because he's given us this law as a framework to understand how it is that we might glorify and enjoy him. We don't get to choose anything we want to enjoy him. We're given a prescribed way to do that because it, because he's good, because he's so unfathomable, we couldn't ever figure out how to do it on our own. So he's given us this law as a way for us to not only grow and become more like him, but as a, a way for us to enjoy him. And I just think that that's such a gracious gift from God where law can, law can really be restrictive. And, and it's certainly there are restrictions in the law. It regulates our behavior, but it's restrictive in the sense that it, um, it restricts us from going outside of the enjoyment of God. If we stay within the boundaries of the law, we're kind of in the prime I don't know, prime area or prime restrictions for the enjoyment of God. So it's it's a blessing that he restricts us from doing things that would detract from our enjoyment of God. Yeah, and there's always a binding in love, isn't there? Like unbound love is an oxymoron. So the fact that God, we've talked a lot about in these 10 words, gives us both a window into his character and a mirror that reflects back to ourselves and in that we get a proper perspective. So here you're right, he has set like these boundaries because like any game, not that life is a game and that's a weird metaphor, but any game, any process is best enjoyed within the appropriate boundaries of that very thing. So to be loved is to be bound to someone or to something in a specific way. And we see that manifest in the way that God speaks to us by giving us these 10 words, which by the way, like again, are not meant to be like explicitly punitive in their nature, but are meant, as you said, to shape and to provide definition to what it means to know God, to serve him, to love him, and then to honor him in the way in which we interact with others. So it's important that again, we of course can isolate, let's say, you know, the fourth commandment about what it means to honor the Sabbath, but not in so much that we isolate it away from what it means to honor our parents or to not covet or to, you know, not have idols. Like all of these things are related because to rest well is to trust in God in the way in which we obey our parents and trust in him. Or it is the way in which we rest in contentedness so that we are not covetous in our attitude. But it should always be driving us back like down to the, the attitude, an examination of that attitude and a purification of our attitude by the Holy Spirit as we try to conform more and more to this law. Again, to be clear, not in so such a way that we earn God's favor but in such a way that because we have already earned God's favor in Christ, that we obey these laws because it is what is the best for us. And that's, I think, something we've been really outspoken about. Like, it's for our good. It's for our good. So anybody wants to throw it away because there's basically saying, I know what's better for my good. And that immediately puts us in violation of at least a handful of those commandments. So let's talk about, like, in terms of practicality, just kind of its pragmatic nature and thinking about these 10 together. How do you apply these things? What are, what are ways that maybe that you use these as a rubric for daily living? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the most basic thing is is I memorize the Ten Commandments, and now it's it's not like every you know it's not like every decision you make is a conscious decision that you stop and deliberate about. We make dozens or hundreds of decisions every day that don't have a conscious thought process, but when I do have a decision that's a deliberative 
you know, deliberative decision that makes, then I have to have a thought process. I can quickly bounce whatever that decision is up against the 10 commandments. Um, you know, is, does this somehow constitute me putting something before God? Am I, am I actually or likely to make this thing or this process or whatever it is I'm doing an, an idol? Um, would this cause me to do something that detracts from God's name? Would this cause me to not be able to fulfill my obligations to worship God on the Sabbath? You know, for, on, you know, does this dishonor my parents? So on and so forth. It, it can be a little bit like cumbersome to stop and do that, but that's actually like a feature, not a bug. So it, it, it forces me when I'm making a decision to slow down and really think about, is this something that actually is a violation of God's law, at least on the surface. Now, sometimes there's a deeper decision making that has to go on where something, it's possible for something to outwardly appear like it might be a violation of God's law, just on like a sort of like a crass comparison on like the words level. And you have to dig deeper and think through it. But it really is it really is helpful for me to have memorized that. And then just to, just to think about that for a second before I make a decision it really makes a big difference. I think that's critical. It's like the simplest recommendation, but maybe the most profound. And that is like so many things we talk about becoming intimately heart and mind familiar with the 10 words. It's really not that much work. Right. And I think we talked about how there's all kinds of mnemonics out there for how to memorize these things, but just knowing what they are. And I would argue this, even knowing which number, now depending on your numer numbering scheme, it might be slightly different, but knowing that again, four is honoring the Sabbath and three is not taking the word, the name of the Lord in vain, having these things somewhere in the background of your theological library. So as you're going through life, like you said, they're just present, but being aware that they exist and that they're enumerated in the scriptures does help to provide, provide kind of like some guideposts for reasoning and decision-making, knowing these are the priorities that God has given to his people. Again, not so that you beat yourself up because we're all going to transgress them, but so that we might do our best in honoring them. But you cannot honor what isn't present in your mind on a regular basis. So memorize them and then weed that garden, you know, every now and again, come back to them and think about them. And, but again, that also allows you to like meditate on. So when you think about the Lord's day, you think I'm doing this in part because I need to honor Sabbath. That's the fourth commandment. It's, it's right in the midst and it's, you know, bookended by do not take the Lord's name in vain, which is number three, and honor your father and mother, which is number five. That's a solid recommendation. Yeah, well, and we've talked about it before in sort of a different context, but part of the goal of this show is to help encourage people to develop kind of like a theological spider sense or like a theological rubric that they can just instinctively understand and kind of almost like feel when something is out of place. You know, we talked a lot about that when we're talking about the doctrine of the Trinity. Like you need to get this doctrine so firmly embedded in your way of thinking that it becomes the it becomes the filter that all other doctrines pass through. And it has to pass that criteria of being consistent with and in alignment with the doctrine of the Trinity before you can say it's a good a good doctrine or a good necessary consequence of scripture. And doing that with the Ten Commandments on sort of the ethical side of things. It's the same exercise, right? You you build this scaffolding of the Ten Commandments, and this is the way that the Old Testament law is written, right? The Ten Commandments are not, they're exhaustive in that they really are ten principles that, re that regulate and cover all of human moral behavior, but they're also simple enough that you can memorize them. You can quickly, I mean, if you've got them in your mind, you can quickly, in a matter of, you know, five, ten seconds, run through each of those in your mind and ponder them briefly 
But if you do that enough, then it just gets embedded in your thinking. And now all of a sudden you're thinking in the language of the Ten Commandments. It's like when you study a language, you study a, you study Spanish and you study and you study and study it. And all of a sudden you realize you're thinking in Spanish. And that's when you know you've become fluent in that language is your thoughts are in that language. You're no longer having to actively translate. Your brain just does it automatically. The same thing can happen with the Ten Commandments. Now, I think there's a... There's a moral, um, there's a moral resistance to that because of our our remaining sin, the corruption that hangs on to us, but that makes it even the more important. You do, you know, like what you said, you have to weed that garden. You have you have to get in there and you have to refresh that in your memory. But working to develop a framework where you see the world, I like to think of it like um, you've seen the Matrix, right, Jesse? Right. Yeah. So like you think of the intro to the Matrix where it's all these different. Um, characters, green characters kind of falling down. And there's a scene in the first Matrix um, where a character is looking at the screen. I didn't see this until like the third or fourth time I saw it, but he's he's looking at the screen of these green characters falling down. And what you realize is that he's been looking at this screen and sort of reading the Matrix for so long that he can he can interpret those characters by looking at that screen. He doesn't have to have something translated into his mind. Well, that's what we need to work on with the Ten Commandments is we need to look at reality and those things need to be so much in the forefront of our thinking that we just make decisions based on that rubric. We don't have to consciously do it anymore. And that takes a lot of practice. And some people will never really get there completely. We're always going to have to work at that. But we can get closer to that. And then it just becomes it becomes almost instinctive to follow God's law. And that's never a bad thing. That's right on. I love the metaphor of the language, which I want to return to in a second it struck me as you were talking like this idea of like having like some kind of moral repugnance against the law in some ways the only way you know that's happening is if in fact you have meditated on the law and so you're sensing at that time like that you bristle underneath it but that's because it's become intelligible to you of course we rely on the holy spirit to move that in a way into our lives that is put into practice it becomes pragmatic but it does start in many ways with just becoming disciplined in knowing that law. So this is like an easy way, honestly, right? To like memorize some scripture in like a large chunk of scripture, which maybe seems like so mundane because we talked about some of these 10 words, like the fifth one is just like five words or four words, but that's still a memorization of scripture. And then at least it is becoming, in, it's coming into your life. It's permeating something, at least, at least your thoughts. And then I think you're right. Like when big decisions come, it's helpful to kind of rattle that through all of those I like the language example because that is, I think what you said that's right on is in memorizing and internalizing into the essence of your being, the 10 words, what we are trying to do is speak the language of scripture without any translation. So I remember this really great Spanish teacher who everybody who's learned some kind of language has no doubt at some point in time made flashcards. And what he required us to do that I hadn't had up to that point from any other foreign language teacher is rather than doing on one side the word like lapis and the other side like pencil, he said, don't put it in English, draw a pencil. And the way is because you're trying to break that need to move in some kind of intermediate way through the language and just go directly to the heart of it. When you see that object that is made of lead that is writing utensil, you think lapis, you don't think pencil and then lapis. I'm hoping I got this right. Do you know what? That is pencil in Spanish, right? I, th I think so. It's been a long time since I have done anything with Spanish. Well, I'm hoping that the metaphor works because otherwise it's breaking down because that's why I remember I think of pencil, I think of lapis. I just see it and that's, I like a lapis. So one of the things that, uh, so taking, I think that from, that's a really great first step. 
Where I take that next in my own personal life is I've often used then having tried to internalize, at least intellectually giving assent to what the 10 words are, I will often use that as my time of personal confession, that I will move through each of them slowly, uh, sometimes maybe just a couple at a time, and use that to spur on confession by knowing that I've transgressed those. And then it's not like I have to try to manufacture ways in which, but settling into each of those as in my time of like daily worship, where I'm using that as the method by which I go through my transgressions so that my confession, at least as I'm understanding it, is full and more deep and more robust. I find that the 10 words are great then as a form of meditation to start in confession. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's one of the problems. You know, confession of sin is not something that really, I think, comes natural to most of us. I think we all realize that it's it's sort of a part of our prayer life that should be there. Um, but but we, I think I sometimes struggle with like, okay, well, how do I even do this? And, but what you're saying is spot on. Like you can you can start your your prayer time by saying, all right, God, convict me of the ways that I have put other gods before you, right. and, and bring those to mind, and then help me to repent of particular sins, particularly. And then, all right, God, I know that I've brought, I know that I've made other gods before, you know, show me the ways that I've, I've actually done that in practice and not just in my heart. Right. And then, okay, show me the ways that I've dishonored your name. Well, dishonoring your name by attaching, attaching something to it that isn't you is, is part of that. That's the second commandment, but show me ways I've dishonored that. And just working your way through that, there's a depth to that. And we shouldn't be surprised, right? God's word is useful for reproof and correction, not just when it's when we're being reproofed or corrected by somebody else, but for kind of self-reproof and self-correction. God's word is profitable for that. And it's it's sufficient to build up the man of God for the work of service. So we shouldn't be surprised when we see that it has this utility uh, to shape our prayer life. And, you know, I think about like that statement. Um, I, I've heard it like a thousand different times attributed to different people and about different people. I think the most accurate one is that Spurgeon said that if you were to prick John Bunyan, he bleeds bibline. That's like what we're going for is like you want your you want your life to be so saturated with the Bible that when when you don't have control of what's coming out, it's the Bible, it's the biblical language, it's the biblical concepts that's coming out of your mouth. You, you, you've told the story on the show before, but you mentioned it again earlier when you were in some kind of meeting and you said, well, theologically speaking, <laughs> but like, that's it. Like when you, when you have a, an accidental phrase come out, it should be structured so much so by the Bible that that's what comes out when you when you accidentally say something or you don't know what to say or you you know you you try to think of a pithy response to something and a proverb comes to mind like that's how you know you're doing it right is you spending enough time that it's actually shaping your language i like it's interesting when i started studying athanasius i i just um, assumed that he was doing bible research the same way that like we do because his his language in his writing is so thoroughly biblical but they didn't do Bible research the way we did. They didn't write papers the way we did. He just wrote, he just preached, he just spoke. And it was just biblical language because he was so saturated in that. And that's something we've lost. And this is a really good way to kind of start to recuperate that. The, the 10 words are self-contained. They're relatively straightforward. It's, it's, it's not a short passage of scripture to memorize, but it's certainly not the longest passage to memorize. Um, or even if you need to memorize like just 
I don't know, like the Cliff Notes version of some of the longer ones, like don't create any graven images instead of the whole thing about, you know, the birds in the heaven and the sky, all that stuff. That can be tough, but you can memorize the principles of the Ten Commandments pretty easy and then just just meditate on them for a little bit each day and it'll really change the way you look at things. It certainly is a fantastic tool that will move us in the direction, like you said, where our visceral accidental response is always in the tone of the scriptures. And I think it can be hard. Well, it is hard. Prayer is fantastic work. It's really extraordinary work. And it's nice that God gives us the tools within his own disclosure to us to help us in that way. I think the Ten Commandments are exactly that tool, especially with confession, but also in celebration or adoration, because so many of them, again, again, it's the best of both worlds. You get that window into God's character and that mirror in reflection of yourself. And so one breeds the ability to bring all kinds of praise of acclamation to God. And the second allows us to draw a means and a lightning rod for our own confession. And we use them and they just have endless utility. And it allows us to do some of the things we've always promulgated, which is that the scripture reads us. And so it's like a just a like you just walk into this room that was made for you and you sit down and you find that it's perfectly set up and you had to do nothing at all to do that. So I think God is pleased when we use, of course, when we're praying scripture back to him, but also allowing scripture to do its work, which is the breath of God into our lives without us trying to manufacture pithy or unique ways to pray. It's all for us right there. And I found it to be like a lovely rubric in that way. It's, it's again, taking that, everything you talked about, about basically the memorization and the meditation to another practical level. They're both practical. And now we're embedding it in our rhythm of worship toward God. And in that way, again, we find that this is where it's life-giving because how lovely is it to praise God in the way that he's due and to understand the praise that is due God and then to have really gut-wrenching, deep, heartfelt heart-piercing, like sword-drawing confession, and then to receive even your daily worship, those words of absolution, which is there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And nothing can separate us from the love of God. Even as we come into this time where we've said, Lord, I have transgressed all of the laws, many of them together, many of them right before I sat down to confess to you. And yet he comes and says to you, like, you are my beloved son or daughter. Because Christ has paid it all. It is paid in full. It's been nailed to the cross. Not my sin in part, but the whole. So it's really just in the Ten Commandments, we find this ever-flowing life because it draws us to Christ, who is that fountain that is deep. I was going to say deep and wide. Um, But in addition to that is where we find a place for us to come and to ask from God the things that only God can give us, which is freedom from our own sin found in the law, freedom to dwell with him forever in complete peace, and freedom from the worries of life, the many distractions, which the 10 words protect us from. So yeah, I'm just getting like more and more stroked about this part of the law. Like the Torah is all the law, but we're talking here again specifically about these these 10 words. What else? Well, I actually think that that brings up a good point is like, because the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, are this summary of of all of the moral reality, um, you know, they're this this Ten Principles for for regulating moral behavior. We sometimes, I think, forget that the the rest of the Pentateuch 
is law, but there's also expressions of this law throughout the whole Bible. And so even going broader than just the Ten Commandments, I remember, you know, for my my job, I'm a patient advocate, and that sometimes means I have to kind of like investigate um, like whether or not some sort of breach of conduct or breach of ethics or breach of protocol happened. And it's funny because I, you know, we were we were talking with one, a newer colleague and they they had received like a report of an incident from a patient and they got all like really really angry and mad about this and they they shot off like a here email to a manager in an apartment and then it turns out that that wasn't at all what happened and so we were kind of debriefing this and i just kind of casually said something i don't remember the exact passage but there's a proverb that basically says like the person who goes first is persuasive until he's examined and like the principle is this is a this is an application of the ninth commandment of not bearing false testimony the principle is basically like don't draw don't draw a conclusion till you've heard both sides of the story and so in that meeting we were talking about i just kind of casually said well you know the person who goes first is uh, is persuasive until they're examined and it was like they'd never heard such wisdom and it was like you know it, it, there's this there's this practical utility to god's law even outside of the Christian's life, right? There is that second use of the law where the God's law governs and restrains evil even outside of the church. And this was a totally valid principle for me to teach. And then she said, well, we're, that's, that's a really interesting turn of phrase. Where did you hear that? Oh, it's from the, the Bible. It's from the book of Proverbs. Oh, interesting. I should read that sometime. Hey, you know, it's only 31 chapters. So even, even beyond sort of this meditative building a framework for our life, it now also has these apologetic and evangelistic utilities that a lot of times you wouldn't even think of. And it all comes, it all comes back to this principle of we need to be so immersed and pickled and marinated in the scripture that when we come out, like we smell like we smell like pickles, like smell like the Bible. We we smell like the Bible. We sound like the Bible. We look like the Bible, and sometimes that's going to mean people are a little bit offended by us, and that's okay. That's actually totally fine if your moral standing butts up against the moral standing of those around you. But I actually think because of the fact that God has has designed the world for the moral law to just be logical and make sense for people. It's, it's written on the heart of man, even though it's been corrupted and, and marred by sin. Most of the time, if you actually take the moral stance that the Bible does, if you're not, I want to be careful how to say this because I, I don't want people to hear me wrong. If you're not being obnoxious about it and throwing it in people's face, most people actually instinctively respect the moral standard that you're taking and resonate with it, right? There, there was no hint of, Wow, that's hoity-toity, Mr. Holier than that one I just said. Yeah, maybe you should hear both sides of the story before you draw your conclusion, right? Right. Or um, we had a similar situation where it was like, well, maybe you should find someone else because, you know, you don't want to have something happen just on the basis of one person say so. You want a couple witnesses who can corroborate it. Oh, where'd you get that? Well, that's that's the biblical evidence principle, right? So you can you can make these conclusions and if you're not obnoxious about it, it actually is a really great way to show people that the Bible makes sense and that it's logical. So there's all sorts of utility. And, and it's funny because I'm, I'm like, why am I surprised by that? I shouldn't be surprised by the fact that God's law is powerful and effective and is a double-edged sword and all these biblical things that we we know to be true. Um, but you can't, you can't really, none of that happens unless you really are doing the work and spending the time 
um, you know, when Jesus tells his disciples, like, don't worry about what you're going to say because the Holy Spirit will give it to you. That that doesn't mean for us, and I don't think it meant for the disciples, it doesn't mean like you can go out there without any sort of preparation and God's just going to like take over your mouth. I think what it means is that the Holy Spirit will bring to mind the things that are appropriate and effective for the situation, but you got to do the work first to like get that stuff in there. The Holy Spirit's probably not going to just download this stuff into your brain. This is classic OM, right? Ordinary means like that. What is so ordinary, but still requires some work is things like memorization, paying attention, being thoughtful about the things you're learning, wanting to learn those things. And in many times, entrusting them to God that he will apply them and even make you more voraciously hungry for those things, even as you maybe find that it sometimes is meticulous to come memorize the scripture. But it's in that moment, I think you're spot on, of course, is that it wasn't like a promise, like suddenly, if you've never studied and been diligent in understanding the scriptures, that the Holy Spirit will bring to recall or implant in your mind knowledge which you never sought. That That's ridiculous. That's not because that's not ordinary means. Now that's extraordinary means. And we know that God works in such a way where he says, yeah, take this simple learning task and he will turn it into something far greater such that you will find your recall greatly enhanced because of that small investment, because that's what God does. And so you're exactly right. This is just like a gift, like in so many different facets. It's so multifaceted that everywhere we turn, we find it's practical knowledge and that suits us. And everybody should be probably be reminded, we're still going through this whole grand series on systematic theology. We have planted this in the realm of Christian ethics because that's what it is. The center of the moral life for the Christian is best embodied in the 10 words. And it's not as so many other Christians use it sometimes as this great methodology of which to browbeat the unbelieving world. What it is first is like a great testimony of the saving power of God who has firmly written, scrawled all this out on the hearts of men, such that whether you want to go to great blogs or self-help books, what you're finding is some weird watered down recapitulation of these principles. I even hate the word principle these days because like that's a cheap word for like general heuristic that is, has some, conveys some kind of benefit. Here we're talking about words of life and God gives them to us. He models them for us in Jesus Christ. He saves us through Jesus Christ to come into these 10 words, to live in them in peace and joy and great reward. And like you said, we shouldn't be surprised that when we apply them properly, and they are for application, like this is for living. So we're saying it's like Christian living, that it's not cheap anymore. And what we find is that I think people will be drawn to them because any kind of transgression of the laws that seem to bring about some kind of benefit are at best short-lived. And I would say even at worst, what you might be seeing as a benefit is underneath that is there's just destruction and chaos. Even though it may seem like somebody is benefiting from their transgression, they're certainly not. Not for any length of time and probably not at all. So what we have here is just this beautiful gift that God gives us. It's for the soul. It's for life with God. It's for living with our neighbors, even if those neighbors are not believers. So all around, no matter where we turn, we find that there is life here, which is, I think, why David is penning, like, there's, you know, and there's no limit to the perfection of your law. And he's talking about, like you said, both like the full Torah, but also like that distillation of it, in a sense, into these 10 words. Yeah, and I actually think that that bears emphasizing that that relationship of the, the Psalms to the law, because I think there are a lot of Christians, even Reformed Christians, um, you know, there, there are podcasts that I listen to that I actually think are practically antinomian. I'm not going to name names in this case because it's not the point. But there are some some Christians, Reformed Christians, who are so um, 
so averse to legalism that they accidentally become practical antinomians. And one of the things I remember, um, I sort of was in a phase where I was, I was stumbling into some of that tendency. And a, a guy I know online, he said to me, well, can you honestly pray the Psalms where David says, I love your law, Lord? Like, is that is that a psalm you can pray? Is that a, a prayer that is valid for you? Or do you actually secretly hate God's law? Like, not to channel all the theonomists out there, but like, do you actually hate God's law? Or, or do you genuinely love it? Do you genuinely see it as the way that we are to walk in to the, you know, to the attainment of life. Is that, is that how you see the law or, or are you begrudgingly saying like, well, I know I have to do it. And I think we have to be careful because the, the law is a delight to those who are believers. Following the law is a joyful thing. And it's, it's not this begrudging thing that we do because we know we have to, because otherwise God's going to be mad at us. We do it because this is the way we enjoy God to bring it back to that point. Right. Whether it's whether it's the shorter catechism, the, the Westminster Catechism structure of, you know, glorifying God and enjoying him forever with enjoyment mapping up to the law or whether it's the Heidelberg structure of guilt, grace and gratitude, how we show our gratitude to, you know, to God for what he's done for us. That is something that a Christian does delightfully. So when I meet a Christian who seems either seems to or flat out says that the, the law is a burden to them. To me, that's actually a really big warning sign about almost even the status of their soul. Like that that's a big frustration. If if there's a Christian out there that or someone who claims to be a Christian out there who flat out disregards all or part of God's law, like that's a big warning sign. So we should be looking at the the law, whether it's the Ten Commandments sort of in narrow form or whether it's the law more broadly, we should be looking at that as as a gift and a blessing and a delight for us to do the will of the Lord. I think that's also another great piece of really practical advice for living for the Christian. And that is that I think we often just have to, in our time of daily worship or corporate worship, pray, ask, plead that God would help us love his law. That is like the domain and the privilege and the right of the Christian to pray that kind of prayer. It's again, asking God to deliver on something only he can provide. And in so much then we don't just have these 10 words like placed and placarded up like in front of the courthouse as if like somehow quote unquote, magically by placing them there saying, if all of humankind would just obey these things, we'd be all right. We'd actually not be all right because what it takes is the heart transformed. And of course, this is like top of mind for me. I've been using this metaphor, but now having seen, you know, the great Dr. Reverend Kevin Schwamm go through his own heart surgery, think of the pain and the trauma of having your chest opened up so that the surgeon can inflict this really significant wound, but in so doing is doing this great repair work that cannot be done unless the wound is inflicted. That is the law and it is hard when we come to it. But then what we find is it is the surgical process by which really this heart of stone is replaced by a heart of flesh. But you doesn't happen unless you're on the operating table, right? It just doesn't happen. And the law does that. So we have to, I think, ask often that God would give us that love. We cannot manufacture it, but we will find that it's sweet and easy, I think, as God himself, as the gentle and great physician comes and does this work. It's just important. So I think there's something practical in this about how we approach the law. And to your point, are we praying that God would, if we're all we're praying is, God, would you help me? Would you want me to want to love the law? That itself is the kind of thing that is so, so helpful to us. This is the joy of doing this in the car. Like, you know, we've got the navigation on, text messages are coming through. This is the real life. 
Yeah. I wanted to interrupt the show earlier because I spotted a an attraction side by the side of the road that said telephone museum. And I remember at one point, I don't know, I was watching Saved by the Bell or something, and Zach Morris's like big like square telephone came on. And somebody said, that thing belongs in a museum. I was like, what museum is that? Guess what, guys? I found it. It's in New Hampshire. I've driven up and down this road probably 100 times in the last 10 years. The first time I've ever seen that sign. Telephone museum. There's all kinds of like great things on this trip, which probably make for poor podcasting in terms of we could just recount all the amazing things that we're driving by and the amazing things that we're seeing on the way. But we'll save that for when we do like the cross country coming to a town near you, the Reformed Brotherhood live events. That's we'll make T-shirts. Actually, I was thinking we in course this conversation, we come back regularly to that metaphor of like the pickling, marinating like fermenting. Can somebody just put that on a cross stitch pillow for us yet? Like, can we trademark that? Get that like on a t-shirt? I'm sure it's not original, but I'd like to think like our application of it is like the way we talk about it is. Yeah. I mean, you're the one that makes like pickles and relish in your kitchen. So you should just make a reform brotherhood pickle relish, name it and then sell it. And then I think legally that makes it trademarked, doesn't it? I, I have no idea how that, yeah, how that actually works. I do, but I do love that metaphor as like we've talked about before, this idea that it is still in some ways the thing that started, but it's something altogether more and different and you would never call it that thing. So you don't really, you don't say like, yeah, even by saying like, give me a pickled cucumber, you've already betrayed the fact that it's a pickle. I mean, you can do that, but it's weird and unnecessary and not accurate. So, or like sauerkraut, you're not like, can you give me that fermented cabbage? Like fermented cabbage has a name in the same way that like a person transformed by Christ has a name. It's a Christian and the Christian wants to conform to the moral law for the purpose of joy and refreshment of rest and relaxation and rejuvenation and energy all at the same time. Like it's, it's all these things. So I think I've, I've heard at times people speak about the law and I thought, man, this person is getting like too stoked about the law. But the more that we talk about it, the more stoked I get. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the times that I've seen someone who's really excited about the law, I've had sort of this like, what a legalist kind of a <laughs> reaction. And, and I actually think that that, what that betrays is this antinomian impulse that if, if we don't recognize that the law I guess, I guess the impulse to call a person who's excited about obedience to the law a legalist, that's just me implicitly saying the law is not really for Christians. Yeah, yeah. And as I've studied the law, both during the course of this series we're doing, but also a uh, slight pause as I look to not get in a car accident. Might be a second. This is fantastic driving. <laughs> I just want everybody to know Tony is an excellent driver. He is taking safety and precaution very, very seriously. And I hear what you're saying because there is, of course, we got to be careful. There are those who use the law like a weapon in a true legalistic fashion. And so we're not going to judge the law by its abuse. Yeah. And I was just going to say, like, it is this impulse to say, like, the law is not for Christians, but it it is for Christians. And in a, in a real sense, it's for Christians more than it is for non-Christians. It's, it's this heightened sense that we're not only obeying it out of obligation, but we're obeying it out of love and gratitude for the lawgiver. He he deserves our obedience and he deserves our fealty and our loyalty. And so there's a big difference between, um, you know, you think of sometimes like in the movies, you'll have 
you'll have like the villain of the movie who's actually the underling of the the person and, and he the reason he's such a terrible villain is because he should actually be uh respecting the person that he's about to betray that that's where we're at is when the non-christian disobeys the law it's it's, I guess, in a certain sense, you know, not to like contradict R.C. Sproul. In a certain sense, it's cosmic treason against the universe. But, but it's it's cosmic treason in that it was somebody who was already God's enemy. Right, right. But when the Christian disobeys the law or disregards the law, it, it's it's not only that. It's it's disobedience and it's a betrayal. It's a betrayal of the one who has done, who's given everything to save us and to bring us into his presence. So I just really think as I've studied the law and I've sought to understand it more, I've really fallen in love with the law of God. And it's made such a big difference in my life to really think through what does God's law have to say about this? This is a silly example, but what literally went through my head as I'm pulling up to this intersection and Jesse's got this microphone in my face was, should I keep going and try to make this turn? while still continuing to be articulate and the thought process was no that's a violation of of the you know command to preserve life i'm putting us in danger if i don't stop so i've got to prioritize i wouldn't be doing this podcast on the road here if i didn't think we could do it safely but that's a concrete example of times where like we have to be able to think through those things quickly and god has given us the right decision he's given us all the information we need to make the wise choice we just have to do the work to understand that and then actually put that into play and to return to a very old metaphor, I think which we in some ways started this whole series with, I'm returning to that scene, amazing scene in Pilgrim's Progress, where the law is represented by Moses who comes up and as these weary travelers are trying to ascend this difficult hill, he knocks them down, kicks them in the stomach, and Christian says, who was that? And his command is, yeah, that was Moses. <laughs> He's coming for you. And what I'm thinking about now is as we're kind of on the other side of really processing this together, of course, not fully and incomplete in many ways. What I find is that rather than me looking over my shoulder now to see Moses coming for me, instead in Christ, it's like Moses sits down and has a beer with you sitting down over the law and says, well, you're no longer my enemy. And I no longer have to take out the baseball bat and break your knees because Christ has paid the punishment for you. He has actually fulfilled this law. And now let's talk about the joy of the law. You know, like now we're literally sitting and having this amazing conversation with Moses about what it means to obey and to receive joy in that obedience, because we don't have to obey for the sake of our own sanity, safety, or meritorious living. Now the living is just pure joy. And so it's great to be in that position where I don't know, like a picture of Moses having probably a lager. Yeah, yeah, I could see him being a lager. He could be like one of those guys that likes a good like sour, though. I feel oh, like that would be appropriate. Yeah, yeah that, that's pretty good, actually. He probably is a sour guy. <laughs> the pretend I'm ice in the beer. That seems very like mosaic. But the point is that, like the again, the law, to your point, anybody who wants to throw it out is going to throw out so much joy in their life. I think we think that we're somehow preserving ourselves from the beating. But Christ took the beating. And so the Christian now is this great opportunity to come and to hang out, put their arms around Moses shoulder to shoulder and to say like, you know, we now have this great service together in Christ and no longer do I have to look over my shoulder fearing that you or someone are going to come up behind me and knock me down and hit me over the head with this. So there is just so much great joy there. And we should take and draw so much encouragement then from the fact that these words are for us in the same way that Christ is for us. Like, Unto us, for us, a child is born and a son is given. I know that Luther was big in saying like all those words for us, wherever you see them in the scriptures and understand them to be present, that they should be in plated in gold because 
that is just an amazing promise of God. Yeah. And maybe to kind of like wrap this out, I mean, we've, we've talked about so many different things. Uh, this is one of those like youth pastor stories that who knows if it's actually true. It's, it's been handed down from generation to generation, but my youth pastor, when I was growing up would tell a story about how he, he had a friend in high school who, who loved roller coasters, but he really just thought that, you know, he would have so much more fun on the roller coaster if he wasn't like strapped in, he'd be so much more free. And then he, he ended up somehow on a roller coaster where the lap bar malfunctioned and it was the most terrifying experience of his life. And I think that's, that's where we're at a lot of times as Christians. We're like, Oh man, this law is so restrictive. If we could just, if I could just be free. Well, the, the reality is like, it's there for our benefit. It's there for our good. It's there for our protection. And we just need to, we just need to embrace that. And it, it's not easy. I know we're making it sound like, well, you just got to do it. Of course, you can't just do it. And the other the other thought I had, too, is, you know, the Bible presents the law in in sort of strange fashion when it's reflected on in the New Testament. And you have to be careful how you understand it. But one of the most striking examples is that it's this like tutor, this pedagogue, this this guardian that kept us kept, kept the people of God safe sort of shepherded them along the process until the coming of faith. And that's not to contrast. I don't want to contrast faith in the law. Um, the law is not the gospel and the gospel is not the law, but they're also not enemies. They're not at odds with each other. They're complementary different things. That is a key point for us to remember that the law is meant to drive us to Christ. So even when it's uncomfortable, right, you think of the, the example of the pedagogue that Paul uses. I think it's in Galatians when he talks about the, the law was a pedagogue. Well, the example of that is that was the that was like the schoolmaster that rich people hired to make sure their kid got to school. Well, if that kid was misbehaving, that kid probably got a little bit of a beating from the pedagogue. That is the law for the Christian. When when we step out of line and we need to be driven back to Christ, that's not always a comfortable comfortable thing for us to do. It's not always a comfortable situation, but it's always good. It's always healthy and it's always beneficial. So sometimes we have to just recognize like the law is there for our good and it's there for our benefit and it drives us to Christ. And we couldn't ask for anything more than that. It is just a phenomenal gift. And it's something that we all are in together and practicing. And that's why we love that there's been such a community that has rallied around the conversations that Tony and I are having. It's important, I think, to remember that it's not that the law has been tested and found wanting. It's often that the law has been untested and then people presume it's wanting. So it's really incumbent upon us to put into practice the things all we've all been talking about, the two of us, of course, included. And I would say if you want to join us in that, we'd invite you to do that. And there's a couple of ways you can do one is by joining us on a messaging app called Telegram. You can find our little section of the Telegram world by doing this. Go to your browser, either your mobile device or your computer, and type in t.me backslash reformed brotherhood. And what you'll be given to see there is a link that lets you in to see this world of where we have a couple of channels and people are just talking. These are like-minded brothers and sisters that listen to the podcast and that just want to interact in a couple a couple of different ways. But some is encouragement, it's prayer requests, it's a lot of doing life together under the law. And so it's a great opportunity to do that. The second one is that you can always be a part of giving in many ways. One is just praying for this little silly podcast and the conversations that were happening and the people in the Telegram chat um, or my father who's convalescing for heart surgery. All these things are important things and we appreciate that. 
Another thing you can do is after you've satisfied all of the financial obligations to your family and to your family that is the body of Christ in which is your local church. If for some reason you've sought the mind of God in this and you have something left over that you would like to give toward making sure that this podcast remains free and it is free, you're never going to find anything behind a paywall. You're not going to find any kind of weird ads on this podcast. Uh, that's because there are many brothers and sisters who give just a little bit and a little bit goes a long way to make sure that it remains free. And in that way, I want to thank Brother Cody, who joined us in giving on Patreon. And you can go to patreon.com backslash Reform Brotherhood and you can give just a little bit. All of that goes a long way to making sure that we have all of the proper equipment to record a podcast as we travel on our way. True story. Well, Jesse, we are approaching the homestead here. We're almost home. So I'm just going to wrap us up and say, until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.